This is a memorable occasion, especially for all you young people. If you have a pen or a pencil, you should write down in your bulletin, I was in a public worship service where all of Genesis 36 was read. And very likely, if you live to the ripe age of 80 or 90, this will be the only time that this will be the case. This is not a very popular text. So I ask for your patience as we read through many a name. But there is, I think, a wonderful lesson, a very practical lesson for each of us in this text this morning. So if you would please give attention to the reading, this is God's holy word. It is the eternal word of God, lasting forever. It is completely inerrant. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau. That is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliaphaz. Basimath bore Reul. And Aholibamah bore Jeush. Jalam and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliaphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basimeth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliaphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kanaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliaphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliaphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. They are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Besameth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliaphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliaphaz in the, in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimeth, Esau's wife. They are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife. 
the chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Azer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Mahanath, Ebal, Shifo, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishan, and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ethron, and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died, and Johab, Jobab, the son of Zerah and of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masraka reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Metabel the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names. The chiefs, Timnah, Alva, Zethreth, Aholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would bless us and encourage us, that we might learn how we ought to live, how we ought to trust you from your holy word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after that long text, I'm very glad to look up and see the clock and see that I have about an hour and a half to preach this sermon. 
This is a very long text, isn't it? And as I read through many a name, you wonder, did he even pronounce those names right? I have no way of knowing. And there is a a dulling and a sense that comes in here. And one of the things that I have remarked is that the book of Genesis is very interesting. It seems that it is either a week in which you preach one of the most important and well-known texts or chapters in all of the Bible, or you have some form of genealogy. And in either instance, it's difficult to get a practical application that affects us in terms of our faith and our actions. But this morning, I would like to say to you that there is much in this chapter. I'm not going to go into great detail about all of the various genealogical uh, conundrums or linguistic meanings of all of the names. I'm not going to try to pry out secret meanings from the text that no one has found before. This is a story of a man and his family and of the choices that a man made. And that how that affected not only himself, but all of his family and how it is a witness to this very day for you and me about how we ought to relate to the living God. So this morning, I would like us to see three things about God in this text. The first thing we will see is that the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. The second thing that we will see is that the Lord distinguishes. Specifically here, He distinguishes between Esau and Jacob. And then the final thing we see is that the Lord warns. That this text is a warning that speaks to us. Telling us of the temptations and sin that lie in wait. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord distinguishes. And the Lord warns. Let's begin then first by looking at the Lord is sovereign. We come to this text and this is something that we have seen before. Moses is moving from the main stream of the narrative into a sideway. He's going off of Main Street and down an alleyway. And we've seen this happen before. In chapter 4, he went off of the main line of the godly line of Abel to discuss all of the descendants of Cain. And you remember that chapter had much in common with this. It was also filled with many nearly unpronounceable names. And then later on, after Abraham gave progeny of two sons... Isaac and Ishmael, we broke from the study of the covenant line of Isaac in chapter 25 to look a bit at Ishmael and all his descendants. And it was a similar sideway with some lessons for us and many names. And now here again, right before Moses moves from Jacob to Joseph, he is going to take one more side path to describe for us what comes of Ishmael. Now, why does Moses do this? Is it because he's anticipating that believers in the living God 
Those who read and loved their Bible will sit there and scratch their heads and say, I wonder what happened to Esau. So therefore, he's got to tell us. No, I don't think so, because there are many things that we're not told in the Scripture. I think part of the reason is that Esau will become a nation, and that nation is Edom. You see that several times it's pointed out in the text. It's kind of this jarring parenthetical. Esau is Edom. And as we go through the history of Israel, we will see that Edom becomes a great enemy of Israel. That Edom is a place where Israel's enemies are given refuge, where Israel's pain is a source of rejoicing. As a matter of fact, the Lord God sends a prophet just to Edom to tell them, I am going to smash you because you take too much joy in the plight of my people. That's a good summary of the book of Obadiah. But I don't think this is just a setup for future history either. I think this is an opportunity that the Scripture has to show us that God is sovereign over all things. This is something that we need to be encouraged by and to take and to live out. You see, there is a temptation for us as Christians. There is a temptation even for us as Reformed Christians as we walk around and tell others, you know, you don't really believe enough in the sovereignty of God. You do realize that when you have evening gatherings with food, they are not potlucks. They're pot providences. You do realize that God is in control of all things and numbers the hairs on your head. And yet there is, I think, a temptation to see God as absolutely, positively sovereign over my salvation and my family and maybe even my church. But we're petrified of the world. Somehow the United States is spinning out of control and God can't stop it. Somehow... The weather patterns in the world are outside of God's control. And if he could only get his hand on earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes, things would be better. And we think somehow the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is only for a small subset of people. But Genesis 36 tells us otherwise. That God is completely sovereign throughout all of the world. And we see this in two main ways. We see it first in that God keeps His promises. And secondly, we see it in God fulfilling His prophecy. Look here at this long list of names. It's a large family, isn't it? And look at all of the animals and the, and the possessions and the property and the wealth that is described here that Esau has. And then again, look at the description of the land of Seir, the mountain country that he possesses and dwells in and has kings in. And then as you do that, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. In verse 39, Isaac blesses Esau. In the providence of God, he says... Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break 
his yoke from your neck. Now, this is an interesting blessing because it almost sounds like a curse. Away from you shall dwell. The problem is if we look, though, in the New Testament at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, the inspired writer of Scripture tells us that Isaac is blessing his son Esau. One of the solutions for this is that the preposition is mistranslated. That instead of being away from, it is just of. Of the fatness of the earth shall your blessing be. Of the dew of heaven shall you partake. But the bottom line here is that there is a blessing from Isaac to Esau. It's a rather reluctant blessing. Esau has to beg his dad for it. He says, don't you have any more blessings than the one? And Isaac sort of fires off this, well, I guess I can give you this. And here we see the Lord God himself fulfilling this promise beyond anything Isaac intended or Esau hoped. His family is indeed large. His wealth is unimaginable at the time. His rule is one of power and of might. God fulfills His promises even to those who are outside of His covenant. Why, you say? Why would God bother to bless people who don't obey Him, who don't believe in Him, who are not part of His covenant? And the answer is, (coughs) because God said so. When He says it, He will do it. And we need to understand this. That when God gives a promise, it is a promise that is always yea and amen. He will never swerve. God will fulfill His promises, even in places we don't expect it. We also see it, though, in that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Again, keep your finger where you are in Genesis, and now turn back just a little further to Genesis chapter 25. This is the prophecy that the Lord gave to Rebekah as we were studying some time ago in chapter 25 and in verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This is a prophecy that is given that there will be two nations Jacob and Esau will each be a nation and that there will be a division that comes among them. There is an enmity that will haunt them. And then eventually the older will serve the younger. And this chapter shows us that God keeps His prophecy as well. He fulfills it. Now it makes sense why Moses says once, twice, three times, by the way, Esau, is Edom. God predicted it. He brought it to pass. Even on something that we would not think that God should be bothered with. God should be paying attention to His people. He should be focusing on Israel. What does He care about those who are far from Him? And again, the answer is, God is sovereign and powerful, and what He speaks comes to pass. This is the beginning of the division that will haunt Israel throughout the Old Testament. Just to give you one small vignette to trace. Look at verse 16. 
There is one name in the list of these names. Amalek. He occurs earlier again in verse 12 in a very pejorative way. He is the son of a concubine. Who is Amalek? Well, he is the father of the Amalekites who will stand in Israel's way in Exodus 17 as they depart Egypt for the promised land, who will be an enemy and a foe in Deuteronomy 25. This is the people who will cost eventually Saul his kingship. Do you remember Agag, the Amalekite, that Saul did not put to the sword and Samuel took the kingship from him? And do you remember another Amalekite who goes by the name of Agag? Do you remember Haman, the Agagite, in the book of Esther? We are seeing here the beginnings of this prophecy being fulfilled that these two nations will wrestle one another and they will wrestle not because they kicked around in the womb. They will wrestle not because they're jealous of each other. They will wrestle because one is the seed of God and one is the seed of the serpent. God will bring His prophecy through true. The second thing that we see here is not only that the Lord is sovereign in control over all of the lives of all of the people on earth, but that the Lord also distinguishes. Now, you see, there is another error that we are prone to, I think, as Reformed Christians. We grab so tightly onto the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that we somehow let slip the doctrine of the responsibility of man. You see, these are both true. It's like our Lord Jesus Christ. We must insist that He is divine and we must also insist that He is human. Now, how that exactly works out is quite frankly up to God. But the Scriptures tell me both things and so therefore I must believe them. And just in the same way, the Scriptures tell us that God is completely sovereign, that He numbers every hair on our heads, that He numbers each of our days. And yet at the same time, We make choices, and those choices have consequences. Now, I think some of the conundrum is brought together in that the choices that we make are the result, they are the fruit of our heart. And this is the case with Esau. After all, what did Esau want? We've studied him for some time now. Esau is all about comfort, isn't he? Do you remember he comes on the scene? He's had a long day at work in the field. And he needs some of that red stuff. Because if you don't give it to me, I'm going to die right now. Please, give me the food right now. I'll sell you anything. But please, please, give it to me or I'm going to die. That's what he wants. He wants comfort. He wants wealth. He wants the birthright and the blessing not because of its spiritual significance. He despised that. He sold it for a pot of stew. But you see, what he does want is what goes along with the birthright. The right of inheritance. The right to get the best of dad's flocks. The right to order people around. And you see, that's the third thing that he wants. He wants physical comfort. He wants wealth. But he also wants power. Doesn't he? Even when he comes back to make amends with his brother Jacob, he has to do it with a cavalry troop. 
Does that strike you? You remember before we've been focusing on Jacob's perspective and how Jacob was afraid and he saw all these armed men coming and how Jacob now realized how he had wronged Esau. But now I ask you to look at this from Esau's side. If he is intending to be reunited with his brother, to be reconciled, why does he need a small army with him? Except for perhaps there's some level on which he still wants to stick it to his brother intimidate him a little bit. You know what that's like, don't you? Some of you kids do this all the time. You hide just behind the door, and when your sibling comes by, you pop out. Boom! And while they're shaking, you're laughing. Because you like that. That's fun. You see, that's in our nature. We like the discomfort of others. And that's what Esau is like. He wants physical comfort, he wants wealth, and he wants power. And so what does he choose? Look at the fruit of his heart. The beginning of this chapter tells us that he chose wives. And it's a direct contrast to his brother. Whereas his brother went to Paden Aram and chose wives from his family and from the covenantal line, Esau takes wives from Canaan. He takes pagan wives. And it shows in how his family comes about. This long list of names that I read you, I won't read it again. Do you know that in this long list of names, there are only two names that have anything at all to do with God? Forty-one names, if you want to count them, this afternoon. And the only two that have anything to do with God, are that first generation, Reuel and Jeush. All the others are things like ornament, or turtle, or fine gold, or mouse. None of them have anything to do with God. And you see, Esau has made choices. And these choices now are not only going to affect him, but they're going to affect his family. Another choice that he makes is where he goes to live. It's very interesting. This is kind of the opposite of the Abraham and Lot story. Their flocks are too much for Jacob and Esau to be together. And in this instance, Esau leaves. And he goes and he dwells in Edom and Seir. And you wonder and you say to yourself, why does he go there? Well, on some level, I think, Jacob has the right of inheritance and he should stay in the promised land. But you have to understand that the land of Seir was much better. It was a much better place to be than in the land of Canaan. Because you see, the land of Seir was a land where two trade routes crossed. And where you could sell and where you could do business and where you could gain great wealth from the visitors. Picture like if your entire life was selling cheap trinkets to tourists, how much money you could make. If I asked you, where would you rather locate your business? On I-10, right after an exit, or on a side street in a suburb? You see, Esau wants wealth, and he makes the decision based on this. He wants power, 
So what does he do? He goes into Edom and he conquers these people and he establishes a kingship. Moses tells us even before Israel does. You see, Esau knows what he wants and he goes after it and he gets it. He chooses all of these things freely, doesn't he? I don't see an oracle here that says, and God dragged him to Edom. Do you? I don't see an angel came from heaven and told him who to marry. All of these are decisions that he made. And yet all of them are in fulfillment of God's sovereign control of his life. This is why God can say in Malachi 1 and in Romans 9, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. You see, God is superintending all things by his sovereign power, but that does not leave us without responsibility. Esau is responsible for putting pagan wives ahead of godliness. He is responsible for putting wealth and desire ahead of a pursuit of the living God. He is responsible for putting power and authority above the Word of God. And the same is true for you. If you are sitting here this morning ironically believing in the sovereignty of God and using that as a shield to keep from Jesus. Saying to yourself, when God is ready to bring me to Jesus, He will. Until then, I'll just sit here. That I must tell you that you must repent. You are in sin. And the Lord will use your choices to lead you to destruction. You must choose the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the outworking of your eternal destiny. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, If you want to know if you are elect, choose Christ. And you will be. You see, that is the outworking of election. Do not spend your days worrying about theoretical participation in the counsels of God. Live in the here and the now and obey the word that God has given to you and His sovereignty will not be diminished one iota. But you see, this is what happens to Esau. He chooses from the fruit of his heart and it brings about destruction. This is also a part of the desires of his heart. You see, Esau's heart was only earthly minded. He had no concern for God. His focus was only on the here and the now. And he valued himself based on how much stuff he had. Somehow, I think, Esau was an American. We're only focused on the here and the now. We value ourselves not the way the old medieval nations did, by lineage, but by how much stuff we have. Do you know what makes you real royalty in America? Someone told me this. The difference maker in America, which puts you in the top of the top of the top, is if you have your own airplane. They can take you anywhere you want, whenever you want. You're in complete control. But it's not just that. What kind of car do you drive? Are you better than your neighbor because of the car you drive? Are you better than your relatives because you have an extra bedroom in your home? Are you better than your schoolmates or your friends because your mom and dad gave you a nicer phone earlier than they have? 
You see, this is how we value ourselves. It could be by cars and homes or by the number of toy cars and Legos. But you see, what we have to do is we have to not seek to place value on our own lives by the stuff that we have. That comes from the devil. So you see, children, when you are angry at your parents because they won't get you a certain thing for your birthday or for Christmas or they won't buy the thing you saw on TV or on the computer, you must understand that Satan goes after small people too. He's coming after you to try and take you and turn you against your parents and turn you against even yourself and your own purpose by valuing yourself according to the stuff you have. Do not fall for that lie. It's a beguiling lie. Because it's easy to count stuff, isn't it? How do you count how prayerful I am? How do you count how devoted I am? How do you measure up and stack how much I believe Scripture? Far easier to stack dollar bills, isn't it? Far easier to stack vacation time, isn't it? But you see, this is the way of Esau. The third thing that we see here this morning is that the Lord uses this text to warn us. It is a warning against compromise in our lives and a warning against envy. You see, the first thing we see is that this entire chapter is a test of Jacob's faith. Now imagine this. Put yourself in the place of Jacob. You have received the promises. You are the younger that is supposed to rule over the older. You are the one who is supposed to have all of the blessings of God. God has come alongside you and reassured you of these promises over and over and over again. We've seen it several times, haven't we? But you look. Esau sure seems a lot better off than you. He's got more stuff. He's got more descendants. And he actually has a place that he can call home. God has called you to wander like a nomad in the desert. And Esau has a kingdom and a throne and a castle, as it were. And you look out. And you wonder what God has for you. And as the years go on, it gets even better. You get to go from wandering to slavery. And we look and we wonder, what is God doing? This seems all upside down. Esau should be punished. Come on, smack him, God. He's not doing anything he's supposed to do. Isn't that how it works? I believe in God and I obey and he gives me all sorts of good stuff. And if I disobey, he takes things from me. Isn't that how it's supposed to be? It's what they preach down the highway every week. It's what they preach on the television. It's what Satan preaches to you in your heart when you are alone and vulnerable. That you can know how much God loves you by how comfortable you are or how much stuff you have. And if your marriage is hard, it must be because God hates me. And if you're poor, it must be because God doesn't love me. And if you're sick, it must be because I don't have enough faith in God. But you see, 
This chapter completely belies it. If you took that theology of the modern American church and you looked at this and you didn't see anything else but chapter 36, you would say Esau's elect. Esau is the covenant child. Esau is the father of the line of the Messiah. Look at how God is blessing him. Look at everything he has. And Jacob has virtually nothing. And you would be wrong. So do not make that same short-sighted observation today. Do not judge God by how good your life is now. It's a false judgment. There's also a warning here. It's a warning against envy. And it's along the same lines. Because you see, Esau has it all. He's got money. He's got power. He's got a family. And you see, Jacob might be tempted to want this stuff. He might be tempted to see it as God's blessing. And the problem is, is that we're longing for the wrong things. I ask you, do you pray each day more that your children will get into a good college and get a good job than you do that they would be deeply enraptured by the living God and have a godly spouse and raise godly children and to persevere through hard times and suffering. Do you pray more that the economy will stay strong and you will be able to retire in ease at age 63 and a half? Then you say, oh Lord, give me opportunities to speak to my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren about the wonders of following Jesus. You see, you must make a choice. You must either follow after God or follow after the deceits of your own heart. There is only one way of life. And that is to seek First, God. That's what the scripture says, doesn't it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will then be added unto you. I don't know when they will be added unto you. That doesn't mean that you'll have a steak dinner every night here. But I do know there's a banquet in heaven. It does not mean you'll have the snappiest clothes that are in style and gorgeous. But I do know you will have beautiful, resplendent robes that will never wear out in heaven. It does not mean that every relationship that you have now will be perfect and a blessing. But I do know eternally you will have brothers and sisters innumerable surrounding the throne of God with you. You see, what this chapter tells us is there is a way that seems right unto man, and that is the way of death. It is a warning to you right now that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to come to Jesus. Not tomorrow, not when I do something later, not when I get my house paid off, not when I get the good car, now. Are you seeking Jesus Christ today? That is what Moses and the Holy Spirit is teaching us from this text.
We are to seek the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart today.